Do you love listening to our podcast? You do? Well, we love having you listen to our podcast. And one way you can keep our podcast going is by supporting us. Two ways you can do this. One is follow us on social media on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. We have this awesome content that we're pouring out regularly, so please go check it out. I think you'll love it if you love this show. Another way you can support us is by visiting our page on Anchor FM. Go to Anchor FM, search for the Talk Classic to Me page, and you can support us. There's a link there that you can click to um, give a donation of any amount that you like. They will help keep our podcast going and keep the good content flowing. So yes, we are a lot like NPR. We rely on support from viewers like you. And we value you as an audience member. Yes, you there at home. Thank you so much for being a listener and enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Hey everyone, just wanted to leave a quick disclaimer. There's a moment in this episode where I talk about Hitchcock's wife, Alma Revel, and I could not for the life of me remember her last name yesterday, so I just breezed by it. But she is so important and so cool that I wanted to make sure that I said her name fully at some point in the podcast. So when you hear me talk about Alma, the person that I'm talking about is Alma Revel, the awesome screenwriter who was Hitchcock's wife and inspiration and helper in so many things. So we're paying her her full respect here right now. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film Rear Window from 1954 with my wonderful guest, Alan Rickert. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. This is Alan Rickert. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Of course. I'm so excited that you're here. So this week we watched the movie Rear Window from 1954. Um, I specifically had Alan on because we are both Hitchcock fans and Alan took a special class in college devoted to Hitchcock. I took all, uh, yeah, a Hitchcock class in college that I was very excited about after taking, I don't know how many film history classes, whatever. I think we, because he did like 50 Hitchcock movies he directed i think we got we watched about 15 and then clips of the others so well and i'm again i'm a huge hitchcock fan so alan and i have at parties bored people to death by getting really excited and geeking out over these movies so we thought hey why not bore people to death at a party let's do it on a podcast hey get ready to be bored use our knowledge let's do it but if you're here that means you like it and you're not bored by it we we forced our friends to listen to us but now people are gonna (laughs) willingly hear our thoughts on hitchcock okay so rear window let's do a quick plot summary for anyone who may not have seen it first of all it is one of the greatest films i think of all time it's such a prolific special film I think it's Hitchcock's greatest. I know that's controversial. People really like Vertigo. I think Rear Window is the best. I, it's hard to say because I there's a special place in my heart for Vertigo just because I think it might have been the first Hitchcock movie I watched all the way through. And, and what Hitchcock, I don't know, what he does, he uses the camera as a tool to define the characters, which you don't always see. But this one... I think actually holds up better than Vertigo. Yes. (laughs) I think it holds up better than Vertigo. It was made before Vertigo, and it's just, it's such a cool way of telling a story. And when you think back to 1954, this was all brand new, the way of telling a story this way. Okay, so it's about James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. He is a famous, well, is he famous? We don't know if he's famous. He's a photographer for like a life magazine kind of thing where he goes all over the world and takes these epic pictures and on one of his adventures he has broken his leg and he is bound to a wheelchair and stuck in his like Greenwich Village courtyard apartment so it's the hottest time of the year he's looking out into the courtyard apartment because that's the only entertainment he's got and uh, one night 
he sees what he thinks is a murder. Dun, dun, dun. And we're not sure. We're like, we think it's a murder too, but maybe it's not. We don't know. And his girlfriend is the stunning Grace Kelly. And for some reason, James Stewart's like, ugh, I just don't know if I can commit to Grace Kelly. I mean, she's absolutely perfect, and that's a huge problem for me. He is not engaged to Grace Kelly, and uh, she really wants to, like, just love him and be with him. And he's like, I don't know. I don't see a future. And she's like, dude, come on. I'm Grace Kelly. And then um, Thelma Ritter, the fantastic Thelma Ritter, plays his nurse. And so the three of them all get involved in trying to figure out and prove if their neighbor really did commit this murder. And, like, nobody believes them. James Stewart has a friend who's a cop who's like, nah, I don't believe you. So, yeah, eventually, I'm just going to spoil it because that's what we do in the show. Eventually, they do get proof that this guy committed murder, and he comes to try to murder James Stewart, and he has him, like, uh, hanging over a balcony, and he's going to throw him off, and then James Stewart falls and breaks his other leg. So at the end of the movie, everything's resolved, sort of, except they never figure out his relationship with Grace Kelly, but that's okay, we'll get into that. And then he has two broken legs. So there you go. Yes, that's Rear Window, Alan. Watching it uh, uh, this time, as opposed to what I thought it through before, I think they did define how he felt about her, and I think he was all head over heels. And I'll just say this, because earlier in the film she was like well why can't you just you know take a job here you've been doing this so long he's like no that's not me and then when she just suggested but okay well then i'll go with you on all these adventures and he's just like no no like you, you couldn't handle that look at you like you couldn't just live out of a briefcase or suitcase one suitcase when he tried to like push her away there this again this is something i love about hitchcock which is you see like a wide shot of his pov of her walking to the door her turning around and she's like hurt and she's about to leave. She's like her face and this wide shot is in the dark. Like you can barely see her and she walks out. Now, later when they come back, when she's just like all getting into the adventure of like trying to catch this murderer, she's walking out the door again. We see a POV. She's closer in the shot. This time she's well lit walking out the door and we see his face and you can tell he's in love with her. And it's like, okay, like just from those two shots, I'm like, ah, this is going to work out. You never doubt his love for her. I think it's clear that he loves her the whole time, but he has a very hard time getting past this issue of, like, she's Park Avenue. It's What I was thinking was, like, this is Uptown Girl, except the downtown guy was not excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, he just can't seem to figure out how their relationship will work. And we do get some closure at the end, because at the end of the movie, we do see Grace Kelly with her book mm -hmm. about the Himalayas. And when she sees he's asleep, she puts her book about the Himalayas down and picks up Harper's Bazaar, which is a great way to end the film. She's like, nothing has really changed. Yeah. I still am who I am. This will all so you're right. We do kind of feel like it will work out, but we're not 100% sure. But we do know that he loves her. And that scene you were talking about where she leaves, that's the first scene that he fights for her. Because that's the scene where she's going to leave and she's, she says goodbye. And he's like, well, what does goodbye mean? Am I, am I going to see you tomorrow? Please, I want to see you tomorrow. Because the rest of the time, can we just say, Grace Kelly walks in looking like an angel. Literally, the man is asleep, blinks open his eyes, and we see from his perspective her, like, leaning over him all angelic looking and stunning we love lisa from that shot her name is lisa. And do we call him lb or jeff that's the question because i think we have to call him jeff but why tell us his name is lb if we're just gonna call him jeff the whole time yeah i was so mad at him because she brought him so she shows up she looks like an angel and she brought him a lobster dinner and he is complaining <laughs> the whole time and i'm like dude shut up she brought you a fantastic lobster dinner can you just wait to complain until the dinner is done thank you also you're 20 years older than this knockout come on right do you think you will do better i i, I do i gotta say i do love that if you notice that the only time we really get close to him and her is like just when they are intimate with each other. It's like the shot is, I just. So what I love about that is like the Hayes Code, which was in effect at this time, which we've talked about several times on this show, like the restrictive rules and racist rules of the Hayes Code, uh, they wouldn't allow kisses longer than a certain amount of time. So the way Hitchcock cleverly gets around this, he did it in Notorious and then he does it again in this, to show a couple who has real chemistry with each other and to show like a very sexy moment, he has them do this thing where it's 
it's like they're talking while kissing. So you get this like very sexy, intimate feel, but the kisses never last longer individually than a certain amount of time. So he beats the haze code, which I think is a brilliant thing to do. I actually completely forgot that there was a haze code effect at this time. When did that go away? Do you remember? 68, I think. I think it was 1968. It was from 34 to 68. Wow. But I've talked about this on the show too, where like the Hayes Code totally sucked, but the only good thing about it was since you couldn't show women in the bedroom, you had to have them interact with the men somewhere else. So you got a lot of strong workplace women. Mm. And the second you could go into like the bedroom, all of a sudden all the women were like prostitutes and having sex and didn't like have jobs anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like we lost a little in that respect, but the Hayes Code totally sucked and was terrible and racist and awful. So I'm glad it's gone. Like this is a gutsy movie to do just in terms of like everything is his POV or whatever's POV is like watching this beautiful set that it's just you never get really anything closer than what he sees unless of course he's looking at the big camera lens or the binoculars like again that's i just think that's gutsy for a two-hour movie oh yeah it's something that you would normally see a lot of films look like the stage play of the film right so if a film comes from broadway if they make like a movie version of a stage play it has that feel a lot of times like you've got the one set and everything feels like a stage play What's fascinating about this is it would never work on a stage. We have one set, one shot of one courtyard the whole time, and it feels mm -hmm. so cinematic. Like, it's not a theatrical thing. It's so cool. Um, and we still feel, we learn each of the characters. So the way I would kind of describe this movie is it's almost like, we talked about Auntie Mame last week and how that movie is told through vignettes. This is told through vignettes as well. So we get a little bit of LB mm -hmm. Jeffrey's life, and then we pan out to each of the vignettes of the people that live in this courtyard, and, and we learn all about most, them. The majority of them, I think, do. Have, they, each one has like a little story arc, which is crazy. Yes, they all have story arcs, and we never get close-ups. It's fascinating. Like, how cool is that, that we care about these people, just like LB Jeffries does. We're seeing them from the point of view he's seeing them from, and we want them to be okay, too. Um, I mean, let's go through those characters. We have Miss Torso, mm -hmm. the ballet dancer. Which, I gotta say, it was risque, right? But just Well, it was very... This is the other thing about Hitchcock that I don't love, is, like, he's a gross, dirty pervert in real life. I really hate that about yeah. him. Um, so he makes these, like, gorgeous, stunning movies, but in real life he was, like, disgusting and, like, pervy. And if if that one movie that they made, do you remember the movie that they made about the making of Psycho? With, I never saw it, actually. Um, I know what you're talking about, name? but I never saw it. Yeah. Yep. I saw it, and if that is true, it's disgusting. He, like, had peepholes in his actress's dressing rooms. Like, that's a if, trash if, thing. If this will help, uh, just with the Hitchcock class and the books I read, it sounded like... Obviously, they didn't go into as much of the disgusting stuff, but it does sound like he was impotent, though. So maybe. So no actual physical, just like gross, dirty. Which old is man not hurting. also not good. Um, yes, but the Miss Torso, the ballet dancer, it made sense. I was like, of course, she's a Hitchcock blonde. Like <laughs> she's got beautiful blonde hair, beautiful body. May I also say, if it's really like 95 degrees, how can she dance all day in her apartment? I would just be laying around sweating. I wouldn't be like constantly Unless she's rehearsing, dancing. I don't know. But yeah, her little story arc is great. She always has all these men constantly after mm -hmm. her. She's a beautiful young dancer. And at the end of the movie, they reveal that her boyfriend is this like cute, <laughs> tiny, nerdy little man who was in the army and he comes in and you can tell he really likes her for her. Like all the other guys only liked her because she was hot. And you can tell in the five seconds we meet this guy that he likes her for her and you can tell because her hobby yep. is eating she freaking yep. loves to eat and he comes in and he's like what what's let's go eat together what do you got in the fridge like let's sit down and have a meal uh, it was very sweet it's so fun uh some of the judgment from just watching like uh that first i think it was the first group she had where it was that older guy on the balcony and he like grabs her to come close so she just tries to give him a peck on the cheek but then he grabs her <laughs> And then she ends up kissing him. I, I, I actually just felt bad for her because I'm like, she's got a, a creepy guy. If you don't kiss him, what is he going to do? Like, it's just, uh That's when she comes home that night and she has to, like, slam the yes. door on him because he's trying yeah. to like, force his way into her apartment. Yeah, like, a lot of creepy stuff. And Grace Kelly has the line about, like, a woman's most difficult job is juggling wolves. And I was like, ew, gross. But especially at that time, I unfortunately don't think she's wrong. There is all of that. We really... But the thing is, we never got close to that character, and we still feel all these things yes. for her. Like, you really feel for her, like you said, as soon as she sl slams the door. You don't even... 
we're assuming it's the same, you know, creepy old guy, but you don't really see him. You just see yes. her slam the door and you, you just have that feeling she's dealing with this every day. She probably just one of these, a lot of the guys in her apartment just as friends because she's lonely, but. Uh, <laughs> or like back then, if you like the way they viewed dating was like, if you wanted to go out, you had to have mm. a date, which sucks. And also it was like, probably she clearly doesn't have a lot of money. Maybe it's like, I need this or I need that. And this is the way I have to do it as a woman, which totally blows. I want to be like, girl, yeah. you can do it yourself. Beyonce's song is going to come out in like 30 years, 40 years. You can listen to Independent Woman. You can do it yourself. Why did she have, she did have the smallest apartment, I think, in that complex. And she was the dancer, which killed me because I was like, you need the most room and you have the you least have a, room. The tiniest studio, which I guess it makes sense for New York, but. That's the other thing. I love that we've gone on this tangent because this is what I was enjoying about it. Like, I love the eclectic neighborhood that they have. They're all artists. I marked it down like each of their jobs. There's one guy that has the studio mm -hmm. that's the pianist, that's the composer. There's the opera singer that lives there. There's the, they call her on Wikipedia, they call her the amateur um, sculptor. And I was like, she is not that amateur. Was a that woman's sculpture is moving me. <laughs> Whatever she, hunger, I think she called it. She was nosy though. She was nosy. Her name on IMDb is really funny. I wish I could remember it. They ha all have really silly names. There's Miss Lonely Hearts too. Her story is really compelling. And she's integral to the plot. They're all just this eclectic, cool, fun courtyard. I really like the people in this courtyard. The people that sleep outside and then they have the basket with the dog and they lower the dog basket and That's the dog cute. runs around. Like, yeah, they're all very eclectic. I actually felt like that get. couple with the dog was, at least until the very end, was the comic relief of all this because they're sleeping on the balcony because it's so hot and then it rains and this, yeah. Yeah, and then they have to get their mattress inside the house and the guy drops the alarm clock and you're like, oh no, and he falls into the apartment. So yeah, they've got some physical comedy, but then, well, their dog, I wrote this down because their dog was so cute. And how dare Raymond Burr, oh, and this is no. who we've not gotten into, no. the murderous neighbor, Raymond Burr, AKA Perry Mason, who they try to make sympathetic. We meet him. And we see, oh, and the other couple we forgot to, well, we'll get weds. to them. The newlyweds yes. are great too. The newlywed couple that comes in, instantly start like making love, draw their curtain. And by the end of the movie, they're bickering like a normal married couple. I really enjoyed that journey for them. That probably helped him because he seemed to be very exhausted that she kind of, she just wanted to have sex all the time. And he's like, ah, oh. and then he's just, he doesn't have to worry about sex. They're just, they're bickering, like you said. So Lars Thorwald, a.k.a. Raymond Burr, plays him. They try to make him slightly sympathetic. We see him bickering with a wife. We know the wife is an invalid. And she's constantly nagging him and mocking him. And I, I like that they try to explain why he murdered her. Like, feel maybe a little bad for him. And I'm like, no, I don't want to feel bad for him. I don't feel bad for him. But that whole beginning, she's laying in bed. He makes this beautiful prepared meal she's eating she kind of like shoves him off and he goes to take this phone call and she overhears the phone call decides to take it upon herself to go out to make sure she knows that he's making an ass of himself on the phone like she's really berating him you're like okay he put a flower on her breakfast tray and she took it and threw it and i love that they're like oh that's right she's mean because she threw away that flower she clearly quote unquote deserves to die for that you feel for him until he murders her. They're like, no, okay, you're, no. You feel for him not only, it's like until he murders her, but then until he murders the dog. After he murders the dog to cover up his tracks, and I should say he murders the dog because the dog starts digging up the flower bed where he has clearly buried something. Um, so he kills this dog. And I'm like, why kill the dog? You've removed the item. The dog didn't yeah. have to die. I, I, I don't I don't know what his deal was with the dog. It was a very cute dog. You did not. that, But I love that that's like, you know this guy's bad because he mm -hmm. killed a dog. Forget the wife. Like, yes, he killed his wife and chopped her up. Whatever. But he strangled a puppy. Yeah, the, the wife, like, okay. She's braiding him. Who knows what else other abuse she's giving him. It's hard to sympathize with you, but I we get it. The dog, though, the dog did nothing to you. It's the story world. In story world, things are all different. And <laughs> yeah, my friend Nick Lang is like, if you kill a dog in story world, you deserve to die. Well, it's just like, like uh, groundlings, they always tell you, like, one thing is you never hurt a dog in an improv scene or you lose the audience. Yeah, there you go. Lars Thorwald lost the audience when he killed his wife and then that dog. But mostly the dog. <laughs> but mostly, mostly the dog. It was a very cute dog. Um, and then he does the, all the stuff with, uh, we talked earlier and we didn't totally get into it, but about the work of the camera. 
So what's so creative about the story is we're not just seeing the world from LB Jeffrey's point of view in terms of like, we're not just seeing him. We're not seeing his physical body. We're seeing what he's seeing. Yes. So we know we're looking at the world through his point of view. And sometimes we're literally looking at the world through his camera lens or his binoculars to get closer into what's being shown. And that's such a cool I love that story. that's how that's the tool he uses to get a closer shot. Like the binoculars, it's like a medium shot. And then it, when he takes out the big camera lens, that's when we get like close up medium almost. This isn't his POV, but even the beginning, just telling, we, we get it like right away. You see a shot of him, you go down to the cast, his broken leg. Yep. Here lies the bones yep. of LB Jeffries, the broken bones. <laughs> then we yeah. pan to the broken camera, and then we go up to see the race car shot where he got the injury. Which also, by the way, I think, I'm pretty sure he also broke his pelvis, because that cast is around <laughs> his waist. It went really high. Well, and it even caused him, because towards the end of the movie, when Raymond Burr is about to burst into his apartment, and you're like, get out of your seat and lock the door, he tries mm -hmm. for a second and can't do it. And so you're like, wow. So yes, it must be shattered much higher than we're totally seeing. The cast yeah. does go up pretty high, though. And they do show his, like, older man body. Back in the day, you could be, like, a sexy movie star and kind of have, like, a flabby white man body. People were fine with that. It was Jimmy Stewart, you know, they were Jimmy like, okay, Stewart. you've established yourself, we're going to accept this. <laughs> He's a real person, yeah. And I love that you brought up that opening thing, because I, I took like a, a screenwriting class once, and one of the things we looked at was like the opening pages of Rear Window, and they read like a novel. Like a lot of times scripts are like a really mm -hmm. clean page, you know, not a lot of words, just very bare bones of telling you exactly what you need to know. But Rear Window is not like that. It describes like every single thing you see. We see how he got in his accident because mm -hmm. of the photos. They never have to tell us with words. We understand it all through the pictures they show us. I mean, they still told us with words, but they didn't need to. But then they also show us like his whole career, yeah. you know, the things he does, the dangerous things, the explosions. And then they show us how he meets Lisa because she is on the cover of that magazine, right? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm assuming that's how they met. And I think, wow, you just got done in a couple of shots, like just showing us around his apartment, what his relationship is with him in the world, with himself, with his girlfriend, like I think, yeah. or how he met his girlfriend, I guess they don't show us their relationship. I just think that's a great way of storytelling. And they even describe, I remember like, he has a leather case and a this and a that. So all the stuff you see behind him is like in the yep. script. <laughs> and you kind of think, was that all necessary? But it was. <laughs> well, it worked. It worked. Well, and you wonder how much of that, because I know the screenwriter, um, this guy, John Michael mm -hmm. Hayes, wrote the screenplay, and he also wrote To Catch a Thief and um, Peyton Place and the American version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. But I know Hitchcock and Elma are both very involved oh, in I, I the mean, writing as well. So I, I wonder how like much Hitchcock was them and that they added director, to that. Even if all those details are on the page, it was still, still a lot of his choice how it's shot you know it's well and i think he adds to the writing i think he always like but i know that so hitchcock is mm -hmm. married to this woman um, who's like a script genius and we do not have a hitchcock without her like he does not have the career he has we do not have the movies we have without her so she's kind of like the unsung hero of hitchcock the hitchcock class uh the books we were reading she was brought up a lot just the amount of stuff she would go through to make get these films done i yeah. did she get producer credit or anything because she should have I don't know. That's a great question. I should look that up because she should. She should have had she it. She honestly should. And like he's acknowledged it. Like he gave that one speech of like when he got his Lifetime Achievement Award, he's like, yeah, she did this, 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 this. And like she did so much. Um, so he did acknowledge her. But she, yeah, she she had so much to do with the scripts and the set, all these details. So yeah, I wonder like how much of the script was the original script and how much they added to that script. You know, like that's what oh, I wonder. Is there, we'll is there a know. way to see the original script anywhere? Like, This is the thing. I feel like the script that exists now is the script of the yeah, movie. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's like not the original script. It's like the script after the fact. Because that's what we... Right. We, we would need to at. see a first draft from the, just the writer himself before they yes, get... Yes, exactly. And I don't know if that exists. Well, and who really cares? The movie's great. So... We've already talked about Jimmy Stewart a lot on our show. Uh, please go listen to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That's like our episode where we discuss his life. His basic thing is like he has the most charmed life I've ever heard of. He went to Princeton, was an architecture major, got involved in his university's like theater, pro theater I don't know if they had a program, 
uh, was friends with Henry Fonda, followed him to Hollywood, became a huge movie star, was in the army, became a colonel in the army, came back and became an even bigger movie star, and then got married and then died. That's Jimmy Stewart in a nutshell for you. Wow. So good job, Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) Then we get Grace Kelly, the Grace Kelly, who did not make very many films, but is a complete icon. She won the Academy Award for Best Actress, 1954, The Country Girl. That's the same year as this. Whoa. Um, Do I think she deserved it? Here's what I think. Judy Garland and Dorothy Dandridge were both nominated that year. Dorothy Dandridge for Carmen Jones, Judy Garland for A Star is Born. She beat both of them to get the Oscar, and I don't understand how she did it. I'm going to be real with you. She's great, but... I'll tell you this, uh, I can't speak because I never actually saw that movie with Grace Kelly. What she does in this movie is enough for me to be like, okay, give her an Oscar at some point. Yes, yes. She does deserve an Oscar for sure, but I'm like, did you have to beat Judy Garland and Dorothy Dandridge this time? Like, couldn't it have been a little later or something but then i guess that this is her biggest year like 1954 is huge for her grace kelly's career happens like this she knew from a young age she wanted to be an actor she became a model and everyone's like wow you're the most beautiful woman ever and she's like yeah i know i'm grace kelly um so she goes to hollywood and they're immediately immediately like please be in our movies please so she is in um hold on what's her first movie let me go i wrote it down the movie that makes her a star is high noon which is awesome and excellent and you should all go watch it that's like her first like star making movie and she was pretty young when she made it because that was 1952 so she would have been she was born in 1929 how old would she have been in 1952 can you do math 29 40 20, like yeah, 23 no, yeah. yep so she was 23 in that she's in magambo right after that and then 1954 she falls in with hitchcock and makes uh dial in for murder and rear window and they turn her into a star and then she makes the country girl and wins a freaking Oscar. So she's like, what, 24 then? 25. Oh she's goodness. 25. Oh, my God. Again, can't count. 25. So, yeah, she's 25, has the best year of a career, like, ever, and wins an Oscar. Um, and then she retires at 27 because she falls in love with the prince and marries him and becomes a princess. I, that, that always baffles me. Like, you, like, did you just, were you like... All right, I was at the top of my game. I might as well stop. It's so sad because she's so good at it. She really is a good actress. So it's such a bummer that she would be like, okay, to catch a thief, I'm going to do that. And uh, this musical version of the Philadelphia story, High Society, I'm going to do that. Goodbye, everyone. I've I've accomplished everything. Like It's not an easy thing to come across as such like, you know, uh, a stunning looking female in a movie like this where you're also, you're clearly... Uh, portrayed as a high maintenance person but then also like you're just as witty as the lead like they banter back and forth and they both have good zingers and they both it's not an easy thing to do and you brought this up earlier too she also shows us her adventurous side as well so it's we you're right we get all of the emotions from her we get everything we need she plays it so naturally i think this is one of those roles that's hard to play it's like Mm -hmm. a charlie's theron kind of role because she's literally described as perfect so she physically looks perfect, but she's also got this depth yes. and brains to her. She has this whole extra layer that we see and feel, and she's very natural in yes. this role. I don't know how many people can be so natural in a role that's described as perfect, and she she is that. My one, and this isn't, this isn't a critique on her, my one critique is I wish when she started getting the adventurous side, when she you know tied her hair up, I wish she wasn't wearing heels when she decided to scale the wall into the window. Oh my God, I was so stressed for her. She does it perfectly, by the way. So she's wearing, when she decides to break into Thorwald's apartment on a whim, she's wearing like full, what, like four inch heels, three inch heels, and a gorgeous like, I don't even know what that is, organza, (laughs) whatever the hell it is, like a giant poofy dress. And she jumps, she like scales a wall. You get so stressed out for her. One, for her life, two, for her dress. (laughs) <laughs> please don't get caught in anything don't hurt yourself don't ruin that piece of couture she would have been she would have been better off with the slippers she packed in that little case to to try to scale that oh my god and i love the fucking judgment from that awful police officer i'm not even bringing him up his name is wendell Corey, the actor he is not he's fine that actor is fine the character is a 
piece of crap. Chauvinistic He's dick. He's a yeah. dick. Why are they friends with him? Like, they were like, we were buddies in the war. And I'm like, maybe it should have stayed that way. This guy's clearly an ass. He's not listening or taking anything seriously. He's being so rude to Grace Kelly. You do not be rude to Grace Kelly. Only James Stewart's allowed to be rude to Grace Kelly. Well, maybe... Uh, yeah, it might be his only cop friend, so maybe he's just keeping him around just in case he could use them for help. That's all I can see. See, uh, uh, the one thing I do want to bring up before we get on, just because of that Detective Doyle character, the, I feel like all the, the, at least the female supporting characters, they're so likable and smart. And then you get to Doyle, you're like, you're an yeah. idiot. And even Thornwald, you're like, that's how you're going about this? You're also an idiot. Like, I do like that. I think that it's kind of a rarity to see the female back then at least being portrayed as, you know, smart. Yes, so yes, thank you. Yes. No, it's true because Thelma Ritter, I think she steals this movie. Like, she is so fantastic in this role. Thelma Ritter is a character actress. Um, she's been in so many things, but she also was like deeply dramatically trained. Mm -hmm. So she's not like a jokey character yeah. actress. She's like a character actress who you really believe is that person and is living that life. And her character is the, like the truth teller of the story. She is so smart and she believes them all right away and is totally game to like go into yes. this investigation. Well, she even like puts, oh, puts like, Jeff in his place like right when she's talking. He's like bad mouthing, you know, his girlfriend. She's like, you're, it's, I can't say what she was saying because I don't have the lines in front of me, but it just like, she's like, you're, you're an idiot. Yeah. When she, it was also like, look, it doesn't take a degree to know when things are going to go south in general. Like, I've got a nose for trouble. I was the nurse for the General Motors guy, and I could tell you when the stock market was going to crash because I could tell you what his ailments were, and I'm that smart. And I was like, yes, she is the best. She's so cool. And she's just so, she's such a New Yorker. Like, the way she handles the information about, like, the murder, and she's like, yeah, did he cut her up? What's going on? And I'm like, yeah, this is... Such a great juxtaposition. Christina was bringing this up to me, my, my wife. Uh, that, that's almost the birth of uh, podcast thinking, where she's just like, oh, wait, did he do it this way? Did he do it this way? Like, just like, you know, it's yes. terrible, but you're also like, you're so intrigued. Like, what's going to happen next? It's like, yeah, she's so that way. That's a great way of putting it. And it's so funny because at the very end, when she's kind of being that way with the police officer, he's like, don't you want to know what happened? And she's like, hey, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not disgusting and gross. I just wanted some information. I don't need to see the body. Just tell me what happened to it. It's so true. So she's fantastic in this. Plus, again, I think also it's refreshing in general is to see more than one kind of body type and person on screen. Mm -hmm. So we always mention, like, yes, this film totally lacks diversity in terms of, like, people of color or representation. Like, it's, it's a lot of white people. Yes. But I will say there's white people of different body types of different ages, and it's a little more eclectic. It's not just all Grace Kelly's all over the place. You've got like normal looking people. And anytime I see normal looking people on film, like ordinary people that you'd see in your everyday life, I'm always a bit relieved. Yeah. To me, that always feels like real yeah. life. It doesn't feel so put on and fake. Going with her, uh, uh, Ritter, uh, it's just the sure fact that Normally, when you, I feel like you see this character in any other movie, like she would be in one scene, you're like, oh, that person's smart and funny, and then they're gone, you never see them again. But just the sheer fact that she keeps coming back and she's involved with this, these characters, I, it's, yeah. When she actively helps, she's the reason for a lot of things towards the end, especially. But there, we, we kind of talked about Miss Lonely Hearts earlier. She's one of the people that lives in the building. So the big climactic scene is Grace Kelly sneaks into Thorwald's apartment to get proof that he committed this murder. But Thorwald's coming home as it's happening. And they were supposed to call Lisa in his apartment to warn her. But as the, this is all about to happen, they notice that Miss Lonely Hearts, the woman that lives on the first floor mm -hmm. that throughout the film has been clearly wanting a partner, wanting to be in love, has tried certain like several attempts and it hasn't gone well. She's about to kill herself. And at first they do nothing. And I'm like, oh my God, stop her. But then Thelma Ritter is like, look, you need to call the police. She's about to kill herself. Yeah. I'm telling you, this is what these pills are. This is what she's doing. So they go to call the police to save that woman. And then that's the moment Thorwald's coming to the door so they don't save Grace Kelly because they were distracted by what was happening with Miss Lonely Hearts. So she's Miss Lonely Hearts integral to the mm -hmm. plot, but also Thelma Ritter being like, no, you've got to stop this. Yes. Like this is the decent thing to do is integral to the plot as well. Miss Lonely Hearts is a reason they keep 
they keep interweaving the Thornwall story in with her, which is mainly because like when you see her go to the Italian restaurant across the street and they're just watching her like get dinner for one by herself. And then as we're focusing on her, like, oh, that's that's so sad. Then Thornwall comes right across in the frame and then walks through and you're just like, oh, shit, shit's about to go down. It's that's a great point. You're right because I never quite pieced that together. I thought it was a cool device of seeing him come into that lens. Yeah. But you're right, their stories are constantly interwoven. And it's interesting because she so desperately wants love and he he wants to get rid of his wife. So you, I never put that together. And we should mention Miss Lonely Hearts by the end falls in love with the composer. His music saves her life. He starts playing something he's composed that's very beautiful and it stops her from killing herself. Yes. Um, and then they, they supposedly, we think they end up together. They were not totally sure. She she might have saved him from depression too because if you notice that one time he comes in he's drunk he's stumbling over the apartment by himself you're like okay they found yeah. each other when that the opening thing that we see of him is like there's an ad on the radio that's like are you over 40 are you feeling tired and he gets mad and turns off the radio so like you know he's got the, it, i think it was he felt like his composing wasn't good or something because you're right he just he throws all his papers yep. on the floor and he's upset but yeah they found each other and they're gonna be in love now very cute. Yeah. The piano player, I love it whenever there's a meta moment in a movie where it doesn't seem like it's forced, which is he was playing that the piano and was it Grace Kelly that just says it's almost as if it's being written especially for us. No wonder. Yes. <laughs> and then Jeff has to say, you know, no wonder he's having so much trouble with it. Which is all great. Because you're <laughs> right, it recognizes, like, the cheesiness of having music just put, like, in on movies. But then at the same time, yeah, he's got that great line about it. The, I guess, and then her face, she's just like, oh, I tried so hard. I brought you lobster. What else can I do? Yeah. Grace Kelly, bring me lobster. I'll eat your lobster and I'll be so nice to you. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, just have a very smart, intelligent, funny, beautiful woman bringing you lobster. But yeah, you got a problem with that. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with it. Please, please. I'm great. I would do that. Um, so yeah, uh, the music, yes. It's. I also think it's just gorgeous in general. Like what a gorgeous score, mm -hmm. what a gorgeous use of music because I really like that this film utilizes silence. It's so good at that. Yeah. A lot of a lot of films at this time and since have kind of kept certain things underscoring to give you a certain impression. But this time they use a lot of silence uh, to really make things very simple for us and to really show us exactly what's going on. And then when they do use music, it's that fun, like, it's like kind of sassy, jazzy, but like, ooh, dangerous music. Well, I well even, that, even the opening with the, the Paramount logo and you all of a sudden hear that like, yeah, it's gonna be good. It's frenetic. That's what I wrote. And the title cards are cool because all they do is play the frenetic jazzy music and like show us the names, mm -hmm. but they also open the windows, which I thought was great. Yes. That's when we see all the shades slowly roll up. And then heat is an important factor in this movie too, because since it's the hottest day of summer, that's why everyone's windows are wide open. Maybe at another time of year when it's cooler, people have more privacy. They shut their windows. But right now it's hot. The windows are open. The people are out. Yep. You got to see every part of everybody's life. What were you about to say about the brandy, by the way? I forget. So I read this really gross thing that I wish I could unread about the brandy. So oh, there's this no. scene when <laughs> Gross Doyle shows up and he's being a rude misogynistic detective. And um, Grace Kelly has been warming brandy just for her and Jeff, but she makes a third one for Doyle because she's very nice. And they're all swirling their brandy the whole scene, and that's kind of funny. But apparently, the writer said that Hitchcock wanted that in there because he wanted people to focus on Grace Kelly's breasts. Oh, and I was like, you disgusting pervert. I hate you. But yeah, because she was swirling it when she comes in. She has the cups right about like chest length, and she's swirling them. And I was like, that's stupid and dumb. But it is... I didn't ever notice her breasts. I was just thinking it's so funny that they're all swirling their brandy. Again, I'm a guy. I didn't. I didn't notice either. Like it was, I just. I noticed the glasses swirling, and then I went right to her face or Jess' face because I was like, I don't. I don't care. Because you're watching the scene, and it's just such a fun little extra prop thing. Right. Like it just adds to the scene of enjoyability with them swirling their brandies. And also, like you already established, like she's very likable, and you're already in love with her. Just personality-wise, just with all the, the, the quips she brings in. So you're going to uh, introduce that element of trying to sexualize her there? Like, what is it? Why? Like, 
Well, and apparently it's supposed to be like sexual tension. So when Doyle sees her like a night case with her pajamas because she's going to yeah. spend the night and they've already established they're not going to be sleeping in the same bed. So, you know, viewers at home, relax. Well, also, he has a broken pelvis. Right? He couldn't anyway. But that, yeah, thank you. Doyle's like, oh, you guys going to have sex? Ugh. I'm like, he can't move. No, they're not going to have sex. It's the 50s. But yeah, the prudishness of that. And so, yeah, it was supposed to be like a sexualized thing, too, of like, oh, she's spending the night. I see her nighty. Oh, we're all swirling our brandy. It's this sexual tension-y thing. And I, I mean, I didn't totally get that vibe from it, but that's what the writer intended. Did unquote. you need permission from your landlord to have somebody overnight? That confused me, too, back then. I guess. Maybe. That seems like a lot, especially in New York. You're like, really? Were people really adhering to this? Or is this just the film telling us they're aware that people should not have sex before oh marriage? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and can we talk about, like, their just marriage in general? I have solved their problem for them, but no one ever listens to me. Like, here's the answer to your problem, Lisa and Jeff. Okay. You can still have your fun career, Jeff. You just don't have to do it all year round. How about you do it like two months at a time? And then guess what? Back home, you can also have a gallery where you showcase these awesome pictures that you take and people are really going to buy them. And you can be at home for a couple months too. And you're all rich, so you can afford help if you have kids. The answer is so obvious, but nobody listens to well, me. Well, also, like, uh, as you mentioned, like you're not going to be away on some adventure the entire year maybe a no. couple maybe a few months here and there but then you'll have a few months home yeah and she's fine she has an awesome career it's just like maybe it's just because it's the 50s and as a woman you're supposed to quit your career when you get married but i'm like why do you you, you live in new york do your own yeah. thing she can still have her enjoyable mm -hmm. career if she does choose to have kids with you you're going to be able to afford help to raise those kids what's the problem you can have it all lb jeffries <laughs> well i mean his argument can't be um, um i'm too young to settle down because he was not at this point <laughs> Also, I feel like he looked so much older than he was. He was 46 when he made this, but I was looking at it thinking he was much older than that. He, he had like an older I, vibe about yeah, him. Yeah, I feel like uh, if you were 46 back then, though, you just had a tendency to look older back then. I guess you're right. And his hair is very gray, and we're not used to seeing that in our 40-something actors because they've all decided you can't be gray till you're like 60-ish. I guess. Well, Thornwall, how old was he supposed to be? Because they grayed his hair, yeah? They, they sprayed? Yeah, that was so sprayed. That was so fake gray. You're right. I don't know how old he was supposed to be, but in real life, Raymond Burr was born, I think it said like 1917-ish. Mm -hmm. Again, can't do math. So That's like 40-something. He's 10 years younger than Jimmy Stewart, basically. Yes, thank you. Thanks for mathing. You mathed for me. <laughs> so yeah, I guess they wanted him to look like he was in his 40s. At least the spray on hair, when it's just through the point of view of Jeff, where for the most part, it's just a, a wide shot of looking at him into the window. It was fine. At least if it was like cl yeah. more close-ups of them, then I might have more of an issue with the gray yeah. <laughs> spray. Well, and they did figure out, I feel like the gray spray and like he, he's kind of a dowdy man, mm -hmm. like he's, he's heavier and he does have a sympathetic look about him. And I, again, do wonder if it's just because he's Perry Mason in my head if I feel that way. But they really do try to make him more of a sympathetic looking killer or like someone who isn't a natural killer, someone who would not normally do this, mm. um, who's like a regular person kind of killer. Sure. Because, uh, yeah, there's nothing stealthy or smart or, uh, like, the, you know, I do this all the time about him. Like, this is, like, a regular man who has decided he's going to commit murder, and that's what they try to show us. Yeah. Um, when did you know he really did it? That's my question for you. Uh, Were you sold right away? I ooh, let's see here. I think, I think it was actually, uh, I'm trying to think back to the first time I saw it, but I think it was actually when he walked out with the one briefcase, comes back, walks out with another one i'm like okay there's something yeah. weird and he's definitely trying to not be noticed as he's doing this so i think that's when i was like okay he did it how about you i watched this so long ago that it's i wish i could have that experience of knowing when it really was happening mm -hmm. i wonder if it was the dog well i wonder if it was the dog because the clues that we see lb jeffries is falling asleep in the chair it's raining, it's dark out, we hear a scream, and we hear someone going like, no, at like, I don't know, 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock. Right. And then he wakes up, he sees him leaving with the suitcase at three-ish, right? Yeah. 
Something like that. No, 6, 6. I think it was 6 a.m. I think it was like 6 a.m. or something like that. No, because the original time it was, it was like 2 o'clock, 2.15 or... I think it was 2.15 that he starts to notice this guy doing weird mm. shit. Like 2.45 that he sees him leave. And then he leaves a couple times, but he falls asleep at 6, and that's when that woman is there. And you don't see her. I rewatched it this morning because I wanted to be sure. You never see her exiting the apartment. All you see is when you see a woman leaving the apartment with Raymond Burr's character, and Jimmy Stewart doesn't see this, is you see a woman um, outside of his door in a black hat, and you just see the back of the black hat. So you see him leaving with a woman in a black hat, but you never see if it's really his wife right. or not. And you never see if she came from the apartment or not. You just see her in the hallway already. Right. So... Yeah, it's like there is doubt, but then, yeah, when he's wrapping up that giant samurai-looking knife that's, like, curved, what kind of knife is that? That's not a normal cooking knife. Why would knife. you have that in your apartment? Like, I don't... I don't know, but, yeah, that was very suspicious, wrapping up a giant curved, like, hatchety-looking knife, and then a saw. Yeah, that was suspicious. And the, the mattress was rolled up. The, they had the big trunk, but, but what? Yeah, but when Grace Kelly saw the trunk with the rope and the mattress rolled up, she was like, oh, I believe you now. Ah, see, I barely even remember the mattress being rolled up. I was trying to, like, get all the clues, because I was trying to be like, okay, so when is it official? So I think maybe I got suspicious with the knife. That was okay. when I would have gotten suspicious. Because okay. that's a weird knife to own, and there was a scream in the glass. And It is. Know. Like, that knife was for something... For cutting something specific. You do, I don't know what, but... It's a killing knife. That's <laughs> not a chopping knife. That's, it's, uh, yeah. It's crazy. Uh, I, I keep thinking about... Because we are just watching it again uh, last night. Like, there were two parts that uh, Thornwald really just creeped me out. And I got, like, the shivers. I don't know if you had those moments with him, too. The one in particular is just, just literally when his apartment is dark. And all you see is his cigarette lighting. But you see nothing else that... Just creep me out. Hitchcock is very good at keeping his villains like, like in the Thirty Nine Steps. Those people that were calling him up on the on the phone, you could see the telephone booth off in the distance, but you couldn't see who they were. It's just creepy, not the not knowing what's going on. He's good at turning the simple into scary. Just yes. basic everyday things. He's good at making them feel scary. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then, well, this one's more obvious, but literally just the uh, him saying, "I know it was you," or whatever the note, and then. When Jeff is like looking through the big lens and he just like looks directly at the camera, I'm like, oh god! I noted that moment down and wrote chills. So yeah, the way LB Jeffries gets caught is kind of because of Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly sneaks into that apartment. They call the police because Thorwall is gonna like really hurt mm -hmm. her because he's caught her like quote unquote stealing. And the police show up. They get her out of there by arresting her <laughs> for stealing. Yeah. And she shows Jeff that she's stolen the wedding ring. She has her hands behind her and she points at the ring. And we see through his camera lens, we see him oh, looking down at the was. ring. Yes. And then he looks over at Thorwall, and Thorwall looks directly across the street into the camera lens. Um, oh. And it's the creepiest, most chilling. Like, he's just figured out what's going on. And then Jimmy Stewart does the stupidest thing of, like, he's seen us. Turn off the light. And I'm like, no, don't make it more obvious. What is wrong he, with you? He literally you? should have just, like, moved the camera he was looking through and just like, oh, no, um, there's birds over there. Oh, that's what I was looking at. Yeah, totally. You should have played it cool. Instead, he's like, obvious, please turn off my light. Please let them know it was me. So, yeah, there is that moment. But I guess what do you do in the... It's hard to tell in a moment. I've done really stupid things in a moment. It's a, it's a panic moment. It literally is. It was just a reflex. Like, oh, crap, crap, crap. So, yeah, that was creepy. Also, the moment when he... So, Thorwald finds out what happens... Lisa is escorted from the apartment. He sends Thelma Ritter off with Lisa's bail money. So he's alone in the apartment. He's called his detective. He's told him everything. And then immediately he gets a call back thinking it's the detective. He picks up the phone. He spills all his guts. And then it's silent and he realizes he's just spilled his guts to Thorwald who now knows his identity because he wasn't sure before but now he is. That might have been dumb moment number two from Jeff. It's just Real like, dumb. Before I know who this is on the phone, I'm going to explain everything as to why this person did the murdering second dumb move within five minutes the lights and then that real real dumb. how has he survived all these like uh, dangerous adventures he's been on well and again the fact that he couldn't lock the door i was like you have so much time to lock this door you could be locking this door for days but he just can't get out of the wheelchair and can't <sighs> he should have oh, uh uh 
to the nurse, he should have like just said, hey, uh, I'm going to give you the keys. Can you just lock the door behind you? There's some danger about, can you lock up? But well, I think the reason I got so obsessed with the wheelchair is because earlier in the movie, when he goes to get a massage, he kind of jumps on his leg to get to yes. the massage table. Yeah. So it's like, dude, we've seen you jump on your leg. Your life is actually in danger. Really? You can't shut the door? Maybe, it, maybe those two steps to the bed, maybe it hurt him so much. Like it just can't maybe. do it. I <laughs> Maybe him trying to turn off the light so fast made him pull something. I don't know. I love that he beats the villain by flashbulbs. He's like, I've got the solution. We're going to make everything real dark, and I'm going to wait in the corner, kind of by the light, whatever. And I, when he comes in, I'm going to flashbulb him so he can't see me. I'm going to do Thorwald it. And Thorwald never learned to close his eyes when that happened. <laughs> Four times he does this, and each time it's like the first time. It just, come on, people. Uh learn but that that brings me to the creepy moment of when you do sort of see thorwell's eyes when he enters his apartment Mm -hmm. he enters jimmy stewart's apartment he's almost all in black but then we get a close-up of his eyes and you're like oh shit he means business whoa i do love the uh just him talking to jeff though just it wasn't even like i'm gonna kill you right away it's just like why are you doing this to my life? It was so human. Because, yeah, again, not a natural-born-looking killer. Like, doesn't look like our normal assassins of the day that we're used to seeing on TV. He's, like, right. a normal dude. Yeah, what do you want? What do you want me to give you? I don't get why you're doing this. <laughs> and then trying to kill him when everyone can see. I'm like, dude, really? Don't add and another murder. I guess his anger and adrenaline, the same reason he killed his wife, apparently. Uh, maybe it's what yeah. kicks in. You're right. He uh, clearly he's had previous issues, so I don't know why I'm questioning that. Yeah. And then the the falling onto the police officers and breaking his other leg is another classic. I love that the police catch his fall. We I love that they see him hanging, and their first thought is not to catch him. Do you know what I mean? Their first thought is to like run up to his apartment or to like to, don't they like get someone a gun or well, something? Well, Doyle says give me your give me your thirty eight, and he shoots he shoots Thornwald. You're like he's still holding Jeff on the ledge. What are you doing? Doyle doesn't care. What are people? I don't care about people. Doyle is an awful, stupid cop. The one thing I uh, that still bugs me about this movie is just that end where you see that guy poking out of the window after Jeff falls, and it's just like, yep, he's going to take us a, a walk to the river or whatever, and he's going to show us where the wife is and all this. Like, really? He just gave it up that easily? Really? Immediately confesses. Well, because again, he's a quote-unquote normal guy. I buy it more here than... Like, Again, if anyone's seen Strangers on a Train, just the end of that, because that guy was clearly a psychopath, and at the end of that, like, oh, no, he just admitted he sang like a canary. Oh, he did? Because I don't actually feel like they did have enough evidence at that point to convict him. All they had was the wedding ring, and that's not enough evidence, so he just really gave them all their evidence by showing them where the body was. But as you brought up, now that I'm kind of liking this more, he, as opposed to, you know, uh, a psychopathic killer, he's more of a normal, idiotic, flawed guy that... Uh, it just has some major issues. So maybe it makes more sense. Plus, I just remembered that he hid part of her body. This is the other gross thing that we have to think about. He murdered his wife, probably, we don't know how, but she says no and her glass crashes. So maybe strangling. I don't know how he killed her, but he kills her. Yeah. But he then chops her up. Like, that's a whole part of it that's disgusting and macabre to think about and hides her body all over the place. So I forgot that the body is partly in the hat box. They put it, he put it in a hat box uh, in the apartment. They were going to find that anyway. He washed the bathroom walls, which means there was probably blood and whatever it was on there. It's just, ugh. And I just recalled, oh my God, it's the hottest day of the year or whatever. Why is the body not smelling? If you've got dead uh, body all up in your apartment, wouldn't there be a scent? You'd be surprised how much uh, how much a, a hat box can just cover that smell, I'm telling you. You're right. They're notorious for holding incense. You're correct. I, how could I have forgotten that? Yeah. And I guess he might have gotten some really gross parts out that night. Ew, ew, it's so gross to think about. And I felt so Thelma Rittery just saying that. Because yep. it's like you detach because you're talking about it, yep. but then you really think about it and you're like, ew, gross. Well, also something about, yeah, uh, it's more disgusting when you think about it after because you don't actually see the cutting. You just know what happened because they're saying like, oh, he's got that box. There must be something in there. He's got this. He's cleaning the walls in the bathroom. Although they never see the blood. They just see him slightly cleaning through some sort of weird like reflection. Uh, I'm assuming, I'm assuming there was something that you weren't allowed to show blood back then on the walls i'm going to assume well hitchcock i guess psycho but that was different right it's a different thing but they did black and white because they i thought it was something like they couldn't show all the blood but and it was so many cut 
that's that he probably got around it in that way because he's very clever with getting around the Hayes Code through various creative means. Right. Yeah. No, this movie is really awesome. The one scene that we didn't, we, we touched on that I really want to talk about because I love it so much mm-hmm. is the scene. So right after Doyle leaves, they are all doubting themselves. People like Doyle, your mean, straight white man, so not like you, Alan, but like your patriarchal, misogynistic, mean man makes everyone doubt themselves. Mm-hmm. He sows doubt. He leaves, and they they start to believe that maybe they're wrong, that they've gotten this whole situation incorrect. They start to close their blinds, and then we hear the scream of a neighbor who was the comedic relief, the one with the yeah. dog. Her dog has been strangled. Someone killed, clearly murdered her dog. This wasn't like a wild animal that came in New York somehow. No. Yeah. Like her dog was murdered. And every single person in the courtyard is there, and they all have their lights on and they all show up at the windows and they kind of listen to this woman's really sad like monologue about like, what did he ever do to you? He was a dog. He loved you. That's what he did to you. That's a perfect impression, by the way. Thank you. The role I was born to play. So she gives the speech and we see everyone's faces and they're all really upset about the dog. And then the only light that's turned off is Thorwald's light. And that's the part that you were describing where we know he's there because we see his cigar. We see the little orange tip of his cigar smoking in the light. So he's the only one that didn't come to the window. He's the only one that clearly already knew the dog was dead. He is responsible for it. And this brings their belief back to like, oh, he clearly is a killer. Like, look at everybody else here in this courtyard sympathizing with this woman, showing up for this woman, being surprised by what happened. Now, what we don't know is he's actually crying in that dark. They just don't tell us. Like, it's just this sobbing, like, I didn't want to do it. I loved you, little Smokey. I just named the dog Smokey. I think that's what its dog name is. Smokey, that's a great name for that dog. It just looks like it. Oh, you know what? One thing that creeped me out, uh, uh, Mrs. Miss Lonely Heart, when she did finally have that date over earlier, the guy basically throws her to the couch and starts attacking her. I'm so glad she got him out of the apartment, but I'm like, oh my God. Because it could all go so differently. Like, if this wasn't a movie, if this was real life, there are two instances that stand out, which is, like, Miss Lonely Hearts, like, getting attacked by a man in her apartment and, like, potentially almost getting raped. Yeah. And then um, the dance lady, same thing. Yeah. Like, they both keep the men out of their apartment. They both get them out of there, but that could have gone really differently. If this movie was made today, something else might have happened. And that sucks. That sucks really badly. I'm glad that nothing happened to them. But yeah, those were two like disturbing on a different level kind of moments. One more time about Doyle. I just realized the more you're talking about it, and the more I keep thinking he's even a worse detective or whatever than I thought, because you have this guy who goes on all these adventures as a photojournalist, gets the real story at the heart of it. It doesn't sound like he's ever said anything fake to you, something that to you before that turned Mm -hmm. out fake, but he's still like, no, no, I don't want to look into that. So clearly you're lying. Yes. It's like the laziness of it all. Like "Mm, that would make my life harder. So I'm choosing not to believe you. And I'm like, but dude, it's the truth. Yeah, Maybe, maybe, maybe just hang out and watch the apartment for a few hours and see if you come up with anything. Jeez. Yeah, Doyle just gets worse and worse as we discuss him because I mildly disliked him during the film and now I very much dislike him. His actions and his whole persona, you're just the worst, dude. After you wrap up a season of these podcasts, you should do one special episode where it's just the worst supporting characters in movies because Doyle better be on that list. Oh, man. Yeah, and it's called Rear Window because they're all the rear-facing apartments. There are fancy front-facing mm-hmm. apartments, which I kind of want to see the lives of those people. What were the front apartment people yeah, doing right? while the rear window... Yeah, so the rear window is just the back of the apartment. I want to watch the movie about the person watching Jeff. There's got to yes. be another movie about one person that just sits there watching actually everything. <laughs> there could be. There could be the apartment right above the newlyweds. We don't ever see that above there, so... We never see above there, so that's the apartment where that one person's just watching Jeff the whole time. And being like, what's he doing now? I would love that. That would be a silly movie. Also, this is the perfect quarantine movie, because nobody can leave their apartments. This is the perfect movie for a pandemic. You could remake it now, pandemic-like. That's a great idea, Alan! (laughs) Well, they sort of have kind of remade it... Uh, do you remember the film Head Over Heels starring Freddie Prince Jr.? Did you ever watch that? I did not. It was 2000, the the year, picture it, 2001. <laughs> Monica Potter, it's a comedy, and Monica Potter lives with a bunch of models. I don't remember why. 
but she falls in love with Freddie Prinze Jr. and thinks she sees him commit a murder, but it's the opposite of Rear Window because in the end, he, spoiler alert, he didn't do it, and he's really an FBI agent trying to entrap a mobster, and it was like intended for somebody else to view. Well, you can't have Freddie Prinze Jr. be the villain. You can't, and they fall in love. And it's very, it's a romantic comedy from 2001 that I 100% watched several times. I might uh, recommend uh, Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf. Did you ever see that? I never did, but I knew it was like Rear Window. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be groundbreaking because, you know, Rear Window did it, but he, you know, he had the, he was on house arrest. So he had the alarm thing around his ankle so he couldn't leave the property. And then he'd see the, the neighbor across the street would be, was looked like he was killing people or I don't remember. It's been a while. So I don't remember if it was one person, but yeah, every time he tried to go save, then the alarm would go off on his ankle bracelet. You're like, well, that's a really good way of having to keep someone at home. Right. I will say, I know that they remade it with Christopher Reeve in like 1980 something, but I've never had the heart to watch it. Like I could never bring myself to watch it. It's also a TV movie and immediately I'm already like, I'm probably not going to watch that. And if Hitchcock did it, you probably shouldn't redo the exact same thing i think that's probably a mistake what was it somebody else i don't remember what movie it might have been it might have been 39 steps somebody else remade one of his movies where it was creepy because it was a similar thing 39 steps you see off in the distance the people calling him in the phone booth but you can't see who they are in the phone booth somebody remade that or something similar but they gave a like close up and you saw the people on the phone with making the call and i haven't seen the movie but i just it's not scary because you know who these guys are yeah hitchcock okay so hitchcock is a master and i will say let's do a quick like what's your favorite hitchcock do you have a favorite hitchcock it's tough because i'm rewatching this and this one's incredible uh it's a tie between this and vertigo and vertigo again okay. there are things in vertigo that don't hold up today but just defining everything from somebody's point of view just using the camera style and techniques because that one's one where he's following around this woman who he thinks might be possessed by this ghost from a woman who's in a painting but every time you see her where she's possessed she's like off in the distance and kind of foggy like you almost think she's in a painting so i still have vertigo how about you for me, I think the best Hitchcock movie is Rear Window. Like, if you're yes. like, what's the best one? I'd be like, this Rear one I think holds up the best. Uh, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. And shows like what's cool about Hitchcock and how he can make this simple, scary, mm-hmm. and all these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, I think this is the best one. But I think my favorite ones end up being like the slightly silly ones. Like, I, I love The Lady Vanishes. That's a great one. That. Yes. Right? I like Shadow of a Doubt. We had talked about watching it. We'll oh, probably watch it on this podcast. Shadow of a Doubt is fantastic if you haven't seen it, everybody. it's Well, this is what's fascinating about him, too, is he... I don't want to compare him to Meryl Streep, because as we all know, Meryl Streep is a goddess. Yeah. But Meryl Streep has not stopped working since she has become a professional actress. Mm-hmm. Like, every year of her life, she puts out a new movie and she puts out a new performance that's awesome. Hitchcock, not all the movies are hits, but he worked almost his entire career. Like from the second he put out, so he starts making movies early on. His first big hit is The Lodger, and that's a suspenseful film. And I've actually seen it. I saw it at TCM Fest, and they did a whole new score that they played live for us. And it was so cool. (laughs) It was really cool. So that's his first, that kind of gets him in like, this is my genre. I liked German film. I'm going to maybe steal from it a little bit. And um, I am the master of suspense. And he just does that so beautifully, consistently for so long. Like, I don't know anyone else that is as consistent as he is in terms of good work from like 1927 through 1962. That's a solid, he worked longer than that, but a lot of the movies were not. Great after they're that. not they're not all winners, but he was it did seem like he was shelling out two movies a year, which you're gonna have some ones that aren't as great, but then you're gonna have some great ones. Well, and there are so many great ones. Like this the quality, the standards are so good each time. Yeah. And part of me wonders if it's like because he does have Alma. Like if you have a two person team, probably. it's probably easier. If you have more than one pair of eyes on something that's like a good pair of eyes you're more likely to do better. I'm wondering if there's some of these movies if she probably should have had co-directing credit. I'm just wondering. 
I wonder that. Because again, uh, reading reading the uh, when I was doing the Hitchcock class, just everything. It seemed like she was at least like his muse at all times and was was there at all times, helping out in some way. So when he met her on a movie set, like she was when he met her, she was quote unquote called the script girl. Yes, she was the editor and script girl on his first like film that he worked on. So she's always been. I don't want to say slightly superior to him, but I think he recognized early on, like, oh, you're talented at this. Like you were already hired before I was. So these are our final thoughts. Like, Doyle sucks. Grace Kelly is a goddess. Um, James Stewart is just, he does what he's got to do. He's I delightful. love James. He's a likable in anything, even when he's ornery. You're right. Even when he's ornery, he's a likable guy. Um, and then you've got Thelma Ritter and all of the vignette players, all of the courtyard team. Yeah, we loved it. Rear Window, great movie. Two Thelma Ritter and Grace, I, again, I love James Stewart, but Thelma Ritter and Grace Kelly might have been my... The, the the stars of this movie for me just they steal the show i agree with you 100 percent. like they are the stars i love them so much i love their intelligence their agency and their style each of them the way they go about things is really fun to watch they each have like a unique uh way of doing things i, I like it a lot they didn't see all this initially so you got a guy who could be a little nuts from being isolated in his apartment this whole time. So maybe he is seeing things, but just the sheer fact that you have two outsiders be like, no, no, you're right. We're, we're, we're with you on this. You're like, okay. And we're all forgetting they're New Yorkers. They're New Yorkers. So to them, this makes more sense. Like, this isn't like, we live in a beautiful suburb. This is like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, why the hell not? Exactly. Okay, so now we're at the double feature portion of the show. For me personally, I think if I had to pair this with another movie... So for Hitchcock-wise, I feel like I would pair this with Rope or Mm. To Catch a Thief. Rope because obviously Jimmy Stewart stars and it has another very interesting way of telling a story where it looks like it's one continuous long shot and you're telling the story through like... It's, it looks like one continuous shot, and it's a feat of filmmaking that's very special. And there's also a uh, really disturbing thing of a, a body being under all this food and rope. So it... Yes. Yes, and just like people being very casual about a murder. Yeah. Um, and then To Catch a Thief, obviously, it's very glamorous. You have Grace Kelly. It's a thriller. It's really fun. And then I think, like, tone-wise, if I wasn't doing a Hitchcock film, I would pair this with Wait Until Dark because that's also, like, an invalid, someone who can't, help themselves in a certain way. Audrey Hepburn is blind in that movie and three burglars come into her home to try to steal something they think is in there. Um, And she has to kind of like fight back, but she's blind. So how is a blind person going to fight back? The answer is the dark. (laughs) I've not seen that. Now I want to see, what's it called again? It's cool. Wait until dark. dark. Um, It's directed by the guy that did like Dr. No, Thunderbolt, like a bunch of the Bond films. And Alan Arkin's in it. It's, it's a really cool... I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember like really liking it in high school and showing it to my friends in high school, and they actually watched it, which was huge, because I tried to show them like other classic movies, and they were like, this is stupid, and I showed them Wait Until Dark, and they were like, oh, we're invested. So I Wait Until Dark, I would say, is probably a good tonal film for this mm-hmm. as well. I think uh, I'm going to agree with you. I think Rope is the perfect one to pair with this. It's a different kind of disturbing. But again, you said that one long camera shot, there are certain moments, though, because the camera is constantly, like, slowly moving. Like, there are certain angles and stuff. You're like, oh, this is devious because he's going low angle. He's defining, like, that something disturbing is happening right here. But, yeah. And you've got, like, the homoerotic. There's, like, yes. a homoerotic undertone, kind yes. of. And I think maybe it's what he was trying to achieve with the brandy glasses. Maybe that was like Doyle. It was supposed to be homoerotic, but wasn't. Also, I looked up brandy afterwards. I was like, is that still appropriate to do? And apparently you're not supposed to really swirl your brandy. Apparently that like kills the aroma or the, I don't know what it does. Like you can warm it in your hands. Mm -hmm. That's totally appropriate. And by in your hands, I mean the snifter has to be in your hands. You don't just hold liquid brandy in your hands. But yeah, so you're supposed to hold the snifter in your hands, but you don't need to swirl it, is what I read. So Him wanting to focus on Grace Kelly's breasts just made it ridiculous. Nobody does that. And that's like not sexy at all. It's, uh, I don't think that's super attractive. Whatever. He failed then, because we didn't see it that way. So, haha. The joke's on you, Hitchcock and Grody writer. Well, and on that note, Alan, thank you so much for being here. It was a delight to have you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Talk Classic to me, and we'll see you next time. Uh